Hey listeners, you've clicked play on another episode of the spinoff show here on the Jock and Nerd podcast. I have on Tabitha Eisner, who was uh, suggested to me uh, once again by our friend from Voice from the Underground, Jason Dutch. Uh, Tabitha Eisner was the uh, 2018 Democratic nominee for the U.S. House of Representatives from Alabama's 2nd Congressional District. Um, She's currently actually in the running to be the chair of the Alabama Democratic Party. And you may be like, I didn't even know Alabama had Democrats. What's going on? Well, we get into that. We jump into politics, religion. Tabitha was very pleasant to speak with. She definitely is my favorite Tabitha Eisner that I've ever met. And uh, you'll get that joke when you listen to the episode. But really good discussion about religion and politics and just family. Um, So I really enjoyed having her on. I think you guys will really enjoy listening to Tabitha. Um, She's very well-spoken. Now you're going to listen, and uh, thanks for clicking play. This is the Jock Spin-Off Show. Tabitha Eisner, what's going on? How are you? Hey there. I'm good. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. I'm good. Um, this is another one of Jason Dutch's um, recommendations that now I've um, reached out to and fulfilled having you on this show. Um, so I wanted to first start off by saying, um, how did you get on Voice from the Underground? And tell me a big, the beginnings of that. Uh, well, I know that we were following each other on Twitter, and then I think maybe got into a couple good conversations uh, via Twitter. Yeah. And then they asked me to, to come on the show. And I'm always happy to do that. Uh, I, I love podcasting and I want to encourage startups and uh, expand the variety and the range of podcast material that's out there. So happy to contribute. So you've been on multiple podcasts. Yes. Oh, wow. How many of you, how many of you say, would you say you've been on? Maybe eight. Oh wow! Yeah. So you're you're a pro. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you you're a pro at talking on the, in this microphone across the internet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. When you asked me if I had a microphone, I was like, "Oh yes, yeah." Yes. I, I didn't think you honestly. I didn't think you would. I was like, uh, "If you just had Apple earbuds, that would work as well." Because most oh, people don't. I've got all the equipment at this point. I also have like the uh, like the lighting to do videos from home oh really like lighting equipment and everything because the more the more of that i did the more people were like can you zoom in better or get a higher quality camera really so over time yeah my equipment has improved and uh because you know communication is so easy these days and i think there's a real dearth of access to the kind of information that people want sometimes or maybe it's out there but they can't find it so more of us having these conversations in places where people can hear them that's good for everybody. I, I would say right off the bat, your mic is is very clear. You have a good mic. Thank you. You you've you've purchased some good equipment. So. Thank you. <laughs> it's important though because um, on a lot of podcasts, sometimes the first thing you're going to hear, obviously, is the audio. And if someone doesn't have a good mic, it kind of just sours the show right off the bat. Yes. Yes. Which is you know it's funny. Uh, it reminds me of so many conversations in politics where. Um, it's frustrating how much some of these superficial things matter in politics, mm-hmm. but also just 
that's how human brains work. It does matter that you have a high quality camera and that pictures of you are good. It does matter that you produce a nice video with closed captioning. It does matter um, because it, A, it shows that you care about your Mm -hmm. user experience and about how other people are able to access the information. Um, And also we're just a superficial culture sometimes. And, you know, I wish women didn't have to wear makeup, but I work in politics <laughs> and we do. And it's the same thing I think with equipment. Um, but luckily this stuff is getting so much cheaper these days. Super um, cheap. Yeah. Yeah. I was amazed what I was able to purchase on a budget. Absolutely. So for anyone that hasn't clicked on your bio on this show, can you just fill, fill the listener in on who you are and uh, what's going on in your life? Absolutely. Um, so I, am a lot of fun at parties because I specialize in religion and politics. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Two things everyone wants to discuss, right? Exactly. At every Only on party. the internet. Only on the internet behind uh, your keyboard where you can say anonymous things. Oh, yes. People love to do that. Yeah. We can talk a lot about trolling. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are, I have uh, a master's in public policy to talk about politics and I have a master of divinity to talk about religion. So I'm an ordained minister. Uh, in the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, I am legit religious. Um, <laughs> legit religious. Legit religious. Um, <laughs> and also, like, very progressive. Um, and I think that throws people off sometimes. Um, yeah, that's an interesting dichotomy, for sure. Yeah, yeah. But that is, and to me, the two have always been so closely intertwined. And they're, you know, kind of one, with the same breath, I am both progressive politically and deeply religious. Um and those to me seem like, you know, peanut butter and jelly. They go together so well. So it's funny um, how to see that it's unusual um, in the broader context when it feels so very natural to me. Mm-hmm. And are you still like active in politics right now? Yes, I am. Yeah. So I ran for Congress in 2018 in, in Alabama's Alabama. yep. second congressional district. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that is the southeast region of Alabama. Um, it's a 10,000 square mile district. So it's very rural. Um, the biggest town is Montgomery, Alabama, uh, which is not that big of a place. It is the capital. Mm-hmm. Um, it includes, so my district included part of the capital city, but mostly, you know, just mile after mile of farmland. And, um, was this was, for Alabama Congress or U.S. Congress? Just U.S. To Congress. Got it. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, did not win. Shocking. Uh, in the Deep <laughs> South. Shocking. <laughs> did not win as a Democrat, but I was the Democratic nominee. I won the primary and uh, ran a good race and learned a ton um, and really feel like it, it did good for the community just to have a candidate. And so now I am working to strengthen the Alabama Democratic Party, which is currently in crisis mm. and um why, why why in crisis why do you say that so we um like every state right like we've got a chair and a vice chair that run the party and the um there is a committee often like a group of several hundred people several hundred democrats from across the state who elect the chair and vice chair and all the other positions and um our last election was in August of 2018, and it was a mess. It was a hot, hot mess. Mm. And um, so lots of folks complained afterwards, filed formal grievances, 
and the DNC reviewed the results of that election and said, show enough, that was, that was a hot mess. So uh, y'all need to redo your election. And in fact, you also need to rewrite your bylaws to be in compliance with national standards. So um, that was in February. We were told, you better rewrite your bylaws and have a new election ASAP. And uh, multiple deadlines have passed for getting that done, but our current leadership has been unable to get it done or unwilling to get it done. It's not clear which one. Um, but we, uh, in let's see, in August, the DNC revoked the credentials of our chair and vice chair, meaning that the national party no longer recognizes our chair and vice chair as mm. the leaders of our state. That does but, seem like kind of a mess. Yes, and they didn't step <laughs> down as a result. Oh, no. They are arguing, no, they are still the leaders of this party. So now we have an argument between those leaders and the national party, and then the grassroots folks also have opinions about who should be leading this party and how it should go. Um, but just in general, the Alabama Democratic Party has not been highly functional lately. We have mm-hmm. not been doing a great job of getting candidates elected. I'm sure you have heard Alabama in the news for all sorts of things. Our governor just recently um, confessed that she did blackface, a blackface skit in college um, when she was vice president of the student body, I believe. And um, Mm, that's rough. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And the democratic party in Alabama said, what'd they say? That's it. That was the whole thing. That was it? That was it. That's what they said. They did not answer the phone. They did not put out a statement. They said nothing. When our legislature passed the strictest anti-abortion law in the U.S., Mm -hmm. our Democratic Party said I'm not hearing anything. No, nothing. 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 Uh -uh. Just just uh, for people that aren't aware, I'm sure people are, most people are aware, but what what was the law that Alabama passed up in regards to um, Mm abortion? So it made um, abortion illegal, um, even in cases of rape and incest. The only instance in which it could be allowed um, is if the um, life of the mother is at risk. Mm. So... Where do you, where do you fall brutal. on that? Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, so like, um, like most people, I think it's a difficult issue. Sure. I am not, um, pro abortion any more than I am pro appendectomies, um, unnecessary surgery. You know, sur- surgery is never good, but if you're having appendicitis, you should have your appendix out. And there are certainly instances when, an abortion is the appropriate procedure um, to manage a situation. But I sure. think it should be left to a woman to decide. I I don't know. I don't dare say what the right thing to do is in every situation. And um, so I think it's an appropriate thing to leave to a woman and her doctor while recognizing mm-hmm. that, of course, it's not. Well, I think it's obvious that that's not desirable. No one, No one wants to accidentally get pregnant and then have to go through a scary procedure or even a simple procedure. Um, mm-hmm. Every procedure has risks. Yeah, that's it. And that, and that law is, is it, it was passed and it's in effect right now? Uh, no, no? It's, okay. um, it's supposed to go into effect October 1st, I believe. Okay. Um, but of so course, not, not too far from now. Right. 
Right. Mm. But of course, there are efforts underway to block that, delay it. Um, and they're expecting that it'll go up to the Supreme Court. In fact, they've been pretty, our Republican legislature has been pretty honest about the fact that they passed this law in hopes of challenging Roe v. Wade at the Supreme Court. Hmm. Um, you'd mentioned being the Democratic Party kind of being in a little bit of a mess down in Alabama. Where Where are you kind of in all of this? Are you trying to become a leader within the Democratic yes, Party? Yes, okay. I, am, I am running to be the next chair of the Alabama oh, okay. Democratic Party. Yes. So how, do, how does that work for someone that like me who doesn't know anything about running for politics or anything like that? Yes. So um, it's, very, it's different than running for a public office. Right. Um, it's a party office. So the, in our state, there's no qualifying process. There's no form you turn in to say, I'm officially running. Uh, you just say so. And on the day of the election, we will take nominations from the floor. So right now, we know of three people who are running for the chair. And, but on the day of the election, whenever that's scheduled, uh, other people could decide that day to run or to nominate someone else. How can... um. How is that going to work, though, if the people that are currently in power aren't willing to acknowledge that they're not supposed to be there or not in power, according to the, the National Party? Great question. Yes. So that is, I think, why we have not had an election yet. Right. Because those people are saying no need to have an election. Um, and so the National Party just, you know, keep like a, you know, when you're trying to get someone to do something right, but you don't. You don't want to punish them brutally. Mm -hmm. um, they have kind of little by little provided more serious consequences. So at first they said, you just need to fix it. You know, we'll support you and help you and let's get it fixed. Mm -hmm. And then it was like, no, y'all really need to fix this. And like the tone of voice a got a little, a sterner yep. warning. Yeah. Is, that a, um, is that a word? Sterner? Sterner. Or more stern. More stern. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And they said, or if you don't, we might take away your credentials. Mm -hmm. So we still didn't do it. And they took away the credentials of the chair and vice chair. And uh, there still has not been any movement. And so now the DNC has said uh, they may not seat Alabama at the national convention mm. where the presidential nominee will be chosen. So, you know, all the states have their primaries or caucuses, however you do it, and each state decides who they're going to support or who their delegates are going to support at the Democratic convention um, next year. And that's where we'll select a Democratic presidential candidate. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, so each state gets to stand up and say who they're supporting. Um, and guess which state goes first? Is it Alabama? It's Alabama. We go <laughs> alphabetically. I was going to say alphabetical. Okay. Yes. So when they um, next year, it may not be Alabama that goes first. Is it, I, it? Would it be possible though to get to that point where you won't have representation? Like, could it get that far? Yeah. Really? It can. Wow, that'd be kind of a extreme. Yeah, yeah that that'd would be, be really extreme. That'd be the worst situation, right? Yes. I mean, I think it would be international news if yeah. one of the fifty states didn't get to weigh in. Yeah. On who the presidential candidate is going to be but that's how that's how seriously messed up things are in alabama right now why did why in your opinion did it get to that point power power <laughs> power Power. it's as simple and as complicated as power it's, yes 
I mean, okay, let me let's let's take a couple <laughs> step back steps back then. Why politics? This seems just so. I mean, I'm sure everyone gets into politics. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for this, but I'm sure a lot of people get into politics for the right reasons. But there's always this kind of icky vibe when I when I think of politics. And I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. Like there's always like roadblocks and things you have to do and that aren't like the best and situations yeah. like this that aren't the, the cleanest. Like what? Why? Why get into politics? Yeah. So for me, again, it goes back to that um, reality that I'm deeply religious and that my religious beliefs make me uh, passionate about politics. So um, my faith uh, is really focused on the sort of um, social gospel and the idea that um, Jesus came to make the world a more heavenly place and that Mm -hmm. more heavenly, um, a synonym for more heavenly is more just, um, more fair, more welcoming and gracious and redemptive for people. So I have always felt like religion and politics are very similar. Being a pastor and being a politician are not so different. Where in both, so when you're a pastor, you've got a congregation of people who are broken. Uh, they are sinful. They mess up. They hurt each other's feelings. They hurt each other's bodies. Um, they wrong each other. And this is, we wish it weren't so, but kind of a part of the human condition that we're going to screw up and um, treat one another badly sometimes. But how do we still have community? And we need to have a community that is both just so there's consequences for those kinds of bad actions, but also graceful, where we can still remain a community. So we have to be able to reconcile um, after something bad has happened between us. So that's the task of a pastor, is to keep a community together despite the reality of sin. Mm-hmm. And I think the job of a political leader is to keep the country together despite the reality of sin. We're going to disagree about stuff. We're going to hurt each other. People are going to commit crimes. People are going to be greedy. Um, corporations are going to try and get rich off the backs of workers. This is just how things are. And yet, how do you keep a country together and feeling like a united body in light of those inevitable facts? Mm-hmm. So it's really the same project, religion, politics, all the same thing. <laughs> I just feel like <laughs> politics is just so much more icky. You've never, then you've never been a pastor. <laughs> That's true. I, I've, ne- I've never been either. That, that has to be an interesting thing too, though. Like being a pa- like, I remember talking to someone that was deeply involved in uh, in his community and being in like, um, like, like with, with children and all, and in in the church as well. And he told me that he had to get out. Um, I had him on the show. His name was Sean Chandler. Um, he's like, I had to get out because. I was learning things about my community and not able to leave it at the church or whatever. So I would learn that this guy who I've known forever is cheating on his wife, yet they're both here together at church and she has no idea. And I'll, or I'd, I'd learn that this guy over here is, is maybe hitting his, kill, hitting his children and he's at, his ch- he's at church with his you know, children and his wife has no idea or something like that. Like, how do you, is that stuff that you've come across as well, being a pastor Pastor is the right term, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, and I should be clear. So, I have not ever 
been a full-time congregational pastor. Mm-hmm. I have done it um, on the side. My husband is a full-time congregational pastor, okay. and uh, we decided early in our marriage that one church, one congregation per family is enough. Um, <laughs> one community <Is> it? <laughs> with its problems is sure. enough, and we want right. to go to church together, which means that um, I don't do congregational ministry. Um, so I don't have to deal with as much of that, but yes, every pastor knows stuff about their congregation and has to decide when is it appropriate to share that information? When is it appropriate to insist on behavior stopping? Is there ever a time when you kick someone out of the Mm. church? What kind of message does that send if you kick people out of the church? And, um, I think those are questions that different churches handle in different ways, um, but I'm certainly part of a church that tries not to kick people out while also having accountability for unjust behavior. It's a tightrope walk. Yeah, I was going to say and like, politics is similar. Yeah, I was going to say just being throwing myself in those shoes. If I was a pastor and I knew something that I where I was like I had to kick that person out. I, I would be really concerned not only with, you know, having to do the deed, but then also the ramifications of, okay, like, does this, am I the judge and jury? Like how, like, you know, how, and how does that make me feel? Like, how does, how do I reconcile, like, this decision is mine, yet I'm, you know, everyone's looking to me and now I have this power. I don't know. It'd just be a, a tough thing to even come across and have to, have to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think it it goes back to that core question about grace. Like, do you have grace for people who have made different choices? Mm -hmm. And when is it someone making a different choice versus someone behaving so terribly that something must be done about it? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I I think that um, is is also an issue that we find along political lines. Mm. You know, if someone is hateful towards gay and lesbian folks do we kick them out and some churches would say that we have to they can't be here if they're going to be hateful towards gays and lesbians there are other churches that would say you can't be here if you're not hateful towards gays and lesbians Mm. and and not everyone can be right here so (laughs) where is the the, who is right 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 right. right. like we're we're all we we all have a sense of morals in um, how we've been raised and whatever we believe in. Um, and that's going to be different from person to person. So we all, you know, I might think this is right. And you might think, I think we can all agree on just common decency, but what is the right at the end of the day? We don't, no one really knows. And what does common decency look like? Right. How how do you come to a collective of that? Right. Right. I don't think that you can tell someone that they're condemned to hell and also tell them that you you know, that you love and respect them. Right. You know, I, <laughs> there, there, something at things, your core, yeah, something at your core would, would, wouldn't say that you don't love and respect them if you think they're going to go to hell. Right. 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 So, but that's so much of Christian theology has taught that like, if you don't share my Christian faith, you are going to hell. I've, I've, I've always really, str- so I grew and up then Catholic. What? Yeah. Yeah. I, I've grown up Catholic and I have, a friend that's over in, I have a, a very close friend of mine that is over in Indonesia and Indonesia is a um, very Muslim place. I think it's the Muslim majority in the world as far as countries. I'm, I'm Maybe I'm being wrong on that, but it's very Muslim. And she's over there and she's, you know, spreading the word of God. 
Um, but I've had these talks with her, and I'm like, so at your core, if you don't accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, if, if someone you love it doesn't accept you, you think they're going to go to hell. She's like, yeah, that's what the Bible says. And it's like, how do you, how is this possible? And I, I don't know what your beliefs are, but I'm just like, how can you believe this? Like, how can you believe that a good person's not going to go to hell if they don't right. believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And some like, kid who's born in Indonesia to Muslim parents, right? And they have no is choice. never told, right? N- never made, never made a decision about which religion they're going to choose any more than the rest of us made a decision. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in a much more diverse society, so we at least find out a little bit about other religions right. by the time we're adults, but right. Right, are you really going to say that kid who dies of malaria at age three is going to hell because they didn't figure out Christianity by age three? Yeah. Like, I can't stomach that. No. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. tough. Like, how, how do we know? Like, how do we, how do we really right. know? Right. And our book says, debatably, our book says that you have to be Christian. Mm-hmm. Again, even that is debatable. Um, Does it actually say that? No, because the word Christian <laughs> isn't in the Bible anywhere. Right. And it never is it defined what in the world that means. Now, you know, Jesus says, I am the way. No one gets to the, well, jo- according to John, according to the Gospel of John, which wasn't written by a guy named John, we don't think, <laughs> Jesus said, no one gets to the Father except through me. Right. Well, what does that exactly mean? Does it mean you have to get baptized? Does sprinkling count? Does it have to be full immersion? What if you didn't really choose it? What if somebody dunked you when you weren't paying attention? <laughs> I mean, how, how, yeah, what is it, what does it really mean? You know, and, I find it, I, let me just, I'm sorry to yeah, interrupt. I, I find it very kind of almost refreshing that you admit you're deeply religious, yet you still are kind of questioning what's written in the Bible and what it, the interpretations and what it all means. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, I grew up in a tradition that says, um, you know, a, a mature faith can question and can deal with questions and can deal with the historical realities of how the Bible was put together. And it's an immature faith that says the Bible is literally true and I question nothing about it. Mm. That that's, I was taught that was an immature way, an immature faith. Um, And so who taught you that? uh, Well, my my church tradition, which is the Christian Church Disciples of Christ, which is a small denomination. Um, And then, you know, I grew up in a church where the – that was 30% gay and lesbian. Wow. The church that I went to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's that's only – I only say that because I grew up Catholic and um, even – we were – I mean, we had – I think we had a gay kid in our school, but it wasn't obviously to that percentage. Right. I mean, it, so, and I, we knew that wasn't, I knew that that wasn't n- totally normal. Mm-hmm. You know, that was in the 90s. Um, Which is even less normal. Right. Right. And we knew that that was like, that was a special ministry that we were doing. There weren't a lot of churches that were welcoming to gay and lesbian folks. Mm-hmm. And ours was, and we saw that as an important thing that we could do. Um, so, but I was taught like, you know, it's not ours to judge. Um so if people want to worship God, they are welcome. And mm-hmm. if they have questions, our faith needs to be strong enough to accept those questions, not necessarily answer them, but not be destroyed by them. Mm. You know, and I think a lot of folks, a lot of kids go to college and take a class on the Bible and find out that the Bible was not written by 
Abraham, Moses, and Jesus. No. (laughs) (laughs) And that, you know, and wasn't written by the disciples either. And uh, that there was a whole historical process by which the Bible was formed. And it Mm -hmm. destroys them, destroys their faith. But I was taught your faith has to be strong enough to deal with that reality. I've always, whenever I, I, talk to people that are, are very strict Bible um, followers and very like to the, to the word of what it says. I, I, my, my, my rebuttal is always, do you believe that, you know, people are perfect, right? And usually people, you know, they'll say no. And I'm like, well, the Bible was written by people. So this is an interpretation of what is going on. It's in my opinion, no means, no way something that is a perfect um, creation of everything we should be believing because at the end of the day it was written by imperfect people. Right, so that's that's kind of the the viewpoint I have on the Bible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, it's when you come to have, I think there's a there's a a core value of humility that says, I don't know all the answers. I can't expect to have an understanding of how it is that imperfect humans wrote this book, which is both sacred in the word of God and also a product of its time. And, um, and and I, this imperfect human am supposed to perfectly understand it. No, of course Mm not. So to have that, I think I was always given that sense of, you don't have to understand every last bit of it. What you do have to do is seek God. Mm -hmm. So, that seeking is what was important, that studying and trying to understand and asking good questions um, and being willing to be challenged, that that's faith. That's mm-hmm. what faith is. Um, it's not believing without question. And I think that's affected so many parts of my life and has given me grace to deal with other people. When someone else, you know, says something that I disagree with, instead of acting with anger, responding with anger to that or rejection to instead say, well, am I sure Mm -hmm. that they're wrong? Am I sure that there isn't some truth in what they're saying or what could I learn from their experience or how can I at least listen to them and honor that they reached a different conclusion than I did Mm -hmm. because I'm not God. I don't know the answer to this. Um, and yet also engage um, in conversation and push back on things that I think are unjust. I think that's, uh, I think that's a good way to kind of view everything. I think, I think you have a very healthy uh, viewpoint on opinions that might be different than yours. I'll tell um, you, but it's, it's not a very popular way to go about politics. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good. It's a good way. Good thing. You're good segue. Cause I was going to ask you, so how does this now translate to politics in Kind of, you know, how did you get into the Democratic Party and you go, like, this is the party I'm going to align myself with that is most aligned with my religious and political beliefs? Yeah. So, um, you know, my, my understanding, my read of the, of the biblical text and the Christian tradition is that the, the core message that we hear repeated most frequently um, by Jesus and by followers of Jesus is that there is a is that Jesus and God have a particular interest in those who are poor and oppressed 
and set aside in some way those who are excluded from um, you know typical society or mm-hmm. accepted society and so um, you know feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, welcoming the stranger, visiting the captive, liberating the captive, visiting the sick um, those are the core messages of what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. So, um, and to me, feeding the hungry means snap and wick. Like, how are you going to feed the hungry in a society except via these kinds of programs? You can try via your soup kitchen, mm-hmm. but as we need to agree as a society to do this together. And that's what they did in biblical times. Um, they paid taxes to the temple, um, and that's how they took care of widows and orphans. They took care of um, sojourners, strangers in the land, immigrants. When they came through town, people would put them up in their homes. They would feed them from their own harvest. They took care of one another because at some point they knew they would be travelers. They would be immigrants somewhere needing a, a kind um, host, someone to welcome them. Um, you know, we, we're always, our default setting should be to side with people who otherwise might be forgotten by society. And I think mm-hmm. that aligns far better with the Democratic Party's approach to things than with the Republican Party's approach to things. Mm-hmm. So I've always been a Democrat. Your whole life. <laughs> My whole life. Your whole life. For as long as I can remember, knowing what these things meant. Mm-hmm. Is that is that, I guess, a little more difficult in, in Alabama? And you know, with... And maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. Alabama seems to be the perception is is a very Republican state. Is that correct? Yes, it is a very Republican. Well, let me say it is um, in statewide elections. About forty percent of Alabamians vote Democrat. Okay. So it's about a sixty forty split, which is not that extreme. Mm-hmm. The impression is much more extreme because right. the state has been gerrymandered. So that um, republic, although we're a sixty forty state, Republicans have six out of seven congressional seats, and Republicans hold seventy five percent of our state legislature. Wow, does I mean how is that as you as a de- Democrat in that state trying to affect change locally and nationally? Like, is does it get kind of almost like an uphill battle, like something you can never? almost feel like you can win in that state? Uh, I mean, yeah, obviously. It's it's a kind of a miserable underdog scenario. Right. Um, the, deck, the deck is absolutely stacked against us. The Republicans have been clear and transparent about their effort to make sure that they are overrepresented relative to the percentage of the vote that they're getting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I <laughs> I suppose that's the way the game is played. Um, Mm -hmm. so in that sense, I, I don't think we can, I don't think it's useful to spend time complaining about it so much as saying, this is the reality, but we're not, we're not a persecuted, we are persecuted. (laughs) Mm, It's hard to be a Democrat in Alabama, but (laughs) mm, (laughs) um, it it is, it is is very hard. Yes. There are, um, there's a great quote, um, from a, um, GLBT activist in Dothan, Alabama, who said it's easier to come out as a gay man in Alabama than it is to come out as a Democrat. Hmm. Um, I don't know if that's really true, but yeah, um, maybe, maybe not. Right, maybe, maybe not. (laughs) Um, But certainly, it is it is a difficult thing to be. I had 
when I was running for Congress, I had experiences where people, um, you know, I would introduce myself to someone, shake their hand, start talking and explaining that I was running for Congress. And um, we might get a minute or two in the conversation before they'd say, wait, wait a minute, are you, are you a Democrat? Yeah, I'm the, I'm the Democratic candidate running against the Republican incumbent. And they would snatch their hand away. I had one guy wiped his hand on his jeans like he had just touched something disgusting. Well, maybe you were, had a sweaty palm at that <laughs> I did not. How dare you? <laughs> but the, there is literal disgust. People who are shocked to find that I seem... Um, that I'm in their presence, mm. shocked to find that I seem normal. I had so many people say to me, you actually are a Christian, huh? <laughs> what does yeah. that even mean? Yeah. I'm like, yeah, I actually, actually am. Like, I didn't know Democrats could be Christian. Wow. I'm like, you know <laughs> that like 90% of African Americans in this state are Democrats. And African Americans are very overwhelmingly Christian. Sure. You know that, right? But it really comes down to didn't know that white Christians could be Democrats. Uh, and that's yeah. a fascinating – so the racial dynamics in Alabama are extreme. And the um, that assumption that being Christian makes you a Republican is one of the Republican Party's greatest achievements in Alabama. In Alabama or even just nationwide? Oh, and, yeah, nationally too. <laughs> but I had not experienced it like this before. Before coming to Alabama. I just, if I'm putting myself in your shoes, I would just be like, even if I get to, you know, I, I win, or I, I get to the, or I get to where you were at, where you were, you, you were running for the Democratic chair in your, for in Congress, or the running for the chair in Congress uh, against a Republican in a state that is so, you know, Republican, like, how do you find the motivation to be like, I'm going to keep going, even though you know that the majority is probably, you're probably going to lose, right? Oh, yeah. Like the majority. Yeah. Like how do, so even if you, you're someone that wants to affect change, it almost feels like you won't ever be able to do that in, in the I, ways you I want did. to. I did affected you? change. Okay. Yeah. And yeah. how did you do that? Not in terms of policy. I okay. was not able to change policy. Right. Um, which would have been great. But um, what I was able to do was show the Democrats in Alabama that they don't have to hide in the shadows. Okay. And that I think is the, what really happened in 2018 in Alabama that was exciting. So for the first time um, we had, we had more women running for office in Alabama than ever before. Okay, that's good. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, more Democrats running um, than ever. Well, not ever before used to be a democratic state um, back in the days of the, racist Democrats of the South. Um, <laughs> but since that change, you know, it was the most, um, the most Democratic candidates that had been on the ballot and the most black female candidates on the ballot, which was super exciting for us as a state. And we really pushed hard on, um, on a grassroots, grassroots level of saying to people, it's, we're done with hiding. The, you know, people would have guessed, I think, in Alabama that that maybe 10% of Alabamians were Democrats mm -hmm. based on how quiet the Democratic Party was and how few people would admit in public to being a Democrat. Mm -hmm. And so we really started pushing back on that. And the change that we made was saying to people, there's hope. Um, and a big part of what started that, of course, was the election of Doug Jones. 
against Roy Moore back in mm-hmm. December of 2017. And fill people in, what was that election, just so that they know? Yes. So there was a special election for a Senate seat, U.S. Senate seat in Alabama. Jeff Sessions um, was appointed as Attorney General um, under Trump. And uh, so that vacated a U.S. Senate seat. And mm-hmm. we had a special election. Doug Jones won the Democratic nomination and Roy Moore, the uh, accused child molester. Uh, yeah, that guy. So he was the one who um, he admits he dated 16 year olds when he was 32. But it's not a big deal because he got their parents permission. I'm not even going to touch that. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, ah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, other Republican um, politicians in Alabama um, stood with him 100%. Um, There were comments made about this is fine. It's not a problem because you see um, Mary, mother of Jesus, was also a teenager. Oh, my God. Yeah, it got it got pretty ugly here, sure. um, and so and yet it was still a really close race. Um, but Doug Jones is now Senator Doug Jones, and mm-hmm. he is the only Democratic senator in the Deep South. And we're proud to have him, um, and hope to keep him in the twenty twenty election. Speaking of that election, what are your what are your thoughts on uh, the upcoming national election for president, and who uh, who might be able to challenge i guess is i don't even know if that's the right word yeah uh, what what's uh the the current um party yeah um you mean at the national level oh yeah yeah um well it, i it would be not... i'd be remiss if i didn't have someone that's in <laughs> politics talk about what's going on on a national level yes well, in the I last would love 15 to minutes get... of our time oh my gosh i would love to get donald trump out of that office and um you know and i for me, the number one reason that we have to get Donald Trump out is yeah, I was that go, why, why, yeah, why him, why am I? Um, is that there are some core assumptions and core values that we hold dear, or that I used to think we hold dear as an American people, like respect for um, an objective, independent media, uh, the free press, um, hmm. respect for religious diversity and not discriminating against people based on race or religion, um, a general commitment to telling the truth, all of those I, things. I would say he tells the truth all the time. I'm no, being, you I'm, wouldn't. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, you wouldn't. Nobody would say that. Um, he might, he might, his he truth. might say it, that. It's his truth. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Let's spin it that way. Yeah. No. Mm-mm. No? Okay. No, no. <laughs> no, it's not even I I mean it's just a I I really worry about our country and where we're headed when we lose touch with the truth. Mm-hmm. And you know the recent Sharpie Gate, um Alabama's deeply affected by the hurricane mm-hmm. um that was drawn upon us and uh you know, we were, we were not hit by the hurricane, but the president used a Sharpie to try and insist that we were um, simply to protect his ego and instructed NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, to back him up um, despite it being utterly untrue um, that Alabama was ever in the path of Hurricane Dorian. So, 
those kinds of things, they seem silly and we just laugh about them at our house. And yet they're, they're symptomatic of some pretty serious, some pretty serious threat to who we are as a country mm-hmm. and as a culture, as a society. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, it's extremely important that we restore those core values. Um, and I'll vote for anybody who will um, push for that. Mm-hmm. So, um, but I do think it's also really exciting to see the conversation on the democratic side of things um, really turning towards policy and what is the vision of the democratic party, not just we want things to be generally further to the left, mm-hmm. but to really get into the nitty gritty. I think that's been the upside of having all these candidates is that we've really started to say what would be a solution to criminal justice um, to mass incarceration. How, what is a solution? Not just, we all agree it's a problem, but Mm -hmm. what can we do about it? And not just that healthcare needs to be fixed, but let's talk about four different models of doing it. Right. So I think that's exciting. Um, I just hope the party is able to come together and unite behind a single candidate at some point. Mm -hmm. Do you, do you have a, is there a favorite? Do you have someone you're looked at and you're like, I really like this person. There are several people I really like, but I am okay. not going to publicly endorse okay. <laughs> anybody. <laughs> is that so? When you're uh, as someone that's in politics, you can't. Can you? You can't publicly you can. endorse someone. You can. You can. Okay. Um. Yeah. You I just mean, I, you, you refrain until you, you refrain until the party decides. Like, how does that work? Well, I think that it's still early, mm. and um, I think that we need to be careful about. Like right now, when you're trying to make a decision, I mean, you think about trying to make, trying to choose cereal or something simple like that. You know, you. Mm, it's a tough decision you've got, sometimes. Right, you've too. got <laughs> all these options. It's a tough decision. You've got to come up with quick rules for ruling things out so you can get down to what you want. Right. And so you start rejecting things because you don't like the box and you don't, you want a package of eight, not a package of six. And you start rejecting things for very minor reasons because mm-hmm. you just need to have some way to get down to one choice. And I think we're doing the same thing with candidates. I'm going to mm-hmm. reject you for this little thing, and I'm going to reject you for this little thing. And the trouble is, we're going to whoever we end up with, a good portion of people have already rejected them for some reason. Mm. And then how do we come back from that? Right, so in general, right. I'm not. I want to be clear that I'm not in the practice of rejecting. Um, I can tell you, you know, and I and can go into detail. I don't know that we want to do it now, but about what I like about various candidates. Sure. But let's not, let's not let's, reject this. Sir, let's not soon. reject candidates that are still viable options. And when does, when do you guys, you guys, when does, does the party have to come up with a, uh, like when is the, the deadline to like come up with their candidate? Is it, is it, do you know when the timeline is? Oh yes. Okay. Um, so, well, Alabama primaries are March 3rd, Okay. Um, and we have fairly early primaries. They're not as early as Iowa, but they're early. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the convention is July. So by then, um, so at the latest, the convention is when a Democratic nominee will be officially chosen, and so Alabama July. may or may not get a say in that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> going back to that. <laughs> going back to that. So we're gonna. Yeah, what's, I, right what's now gonna, we're planning we're planning a primary, uh-huh. but it may be that we do a primary and then we do nothing with the results of it because we may not be invited. <laughs> well, okay. Let's say let's say every everything goes to plan for you, mm-hmm. and you you become you is that the chair of the Democratic Party? Yes. Okay. What happens next? Um, so in order to get there, we'd have to change our bylaws and I'd have to be elected. Right. Um, and then we would be back in good standing with the party and we'd be able to send our delegation, um, next July. And I would likely be part of that delegation. You seem like a very pleasant person. So let's say it all happens for you. Okay. (laughs) Let's let's do. Yeah. Yeah, Let's just assume it happens for you. Okay. So then what, as someone in that, in that position of, of power, what, oh yeah, more broadly, next... what would I do with the Alabama Democratic Party? Yeah, what what do you do? What happens? What's the yeah. first thing you do? Oh, I raise a ton of money. That's the okay. first thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we we need money to do stuff, and right now we have none, and so we do nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a pretty simple problem to fix. Uh, sure. Let's raise some money. Yeah. Um, and um, so, just for example, in my thirteen month campaign for Congress which is just one slice of Alabama, mm-hmm. I raised 32 times as much money as, as the entire Alabama Democratic Party. It's a lot more money. It's a lot more money. <laughs> it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. So, so raising money would be the first thing I would do. Um, hiring staff um, so that we have people to be helpful. Um Offering all sorts of trainings and supports um, to county parties and to candidates. Um, doing polling to find out what kind of messages work in Alabama, which is a very specific context. And then sharing the results of that polling with our candidates. Um, it's absurd that candidates have to do that polling themselves when so much of it is similar. Um, you know, the polling that I spent 25 grand on polling uh, when I ran for Congress. 25 grand? You just got... Got it like that, huh? Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, ha- I mean, we had to. Like, mm-hmm. you have to do those things to find out because we had a couple different ideas for how to sell me to the voters, mm-hmm. and you know, twenty five grand is what it takes to find out which message works best. Mm. Um, and but you know, on on particular topics, particular, um, I mean, like something like abortion. Mm-hmm. What's the message that helps people to really understand the democratic position um, and hear it and feel open to considering it? Sure. Like, let's try six different ways of talking about it and do polling and focus groups and find out what people can hear. Because just right. because it sounds good in your ears doesn't mean that it's going to work for people who have already aligned themselves with the quote other side. Sure. Um, so we can't trust our own judgment. We need to be doing research and finding out what works. Um, we need to be running ads to rehabilitate the reputation of the democratic party here in Alabama. And there's no reason every candidate should have to do their own ad campaign. Um, we should have a, some coordinated efforts and, um, all of that. And, you know, having a functioning social media campaign, uh, the Alabama Democratic Party has not ever done good social media, but it's not rocket science. No, it seems seems pretty easy to figure seems out. Seems pretty easy to figure out. Yeah, I figured it out. 
<laughs> Hire a few twenty somethings, and you're in business. I was just gonna say, there. Every company has a, like a twenty something that's running their social media, and it's pretty witty and funny, and yeah, gets the job done. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so I don't actually think any of this is rocket science. I think there probably will come a day when um, the Alabama Democratic Party is ready to hire somebody who is, you know, deeply expert. Mm-hmm. in this stuff. But right now what we need is somebody who's passionate and willing to raise the money and do the work. And that's what I bring to the table. I was saying, and that hopefully is going to be you. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've only met you, so I don't know. I am the best else. candidate you've met. Am I you're not? The, you're the number, you're number one. <laughs> if, if I had to choose, it would be you. Wonderful. You, you're, you're one of one in my book. You're the best Tabitha Eisner I've ever met. <laughs> Why? Thank you. <laughs> um, so I usually end the show by letting you kind of just plug whatever you want to plug. Um, so I'll let you do that now. Um, this hour went by very quickly. So hopefully we can do something like this again and um, dive into some other like deeper issues. But um, the kind of the floor is yours in this last couple minutes here. Just kind of plug what you want to plug. Yeah. Um, well, what I will plug is totally off topic just for Go fun. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, so... If you are a parent or someone who imagines someday being a parent, I encourage you to consider foster care. There are loads of kids uh, who are have been taken away from their families and put into foster care, and they need a loving home to live in for a while. Um, That is an incredible gift you can give to a young person, a child through teen, And I encourage folks to consider whether it's something that you could do for your community. Um, My husband and I were foster parents. We have adopted um, from foster care, and I currently run a foster care agency. And I hope that more and more people consider serving in that way. That's very, very nice. Very. (laughs) That wasn't what I was expecting. Public service announcement, right? Yeah, public service announcement. But that that's beautiful. yeah, I thank you for your time. Hopefully, um, when we do this again, we can, if and when we do this again, hopefully you enjoyed doing this. Um, Absolutely. We can do something like this again and get into some of those other topics like uh, parenthood, foster care, all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, um, and come find me, you know, if anyone wants to follow along on uh, Twitter or Facebook. You figured out Twitter, so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think so. I'm, I still feel like less less fluent in Twitter than I am in Facebook. <laughs> I'm of that age range. Sure. Um, but I, I love um, the opportunity to connect with people and um, explore ideas via social media. I think if done right, social media can be a really beautiful opportunity to connect mm-hmm. and explore ideas. What is that Twitter of yours? It is at Tabitha K. T-A-B-I-T-H-A-K. Just okay. the letter K. Mm-hmm. Is there, and you have your own, like a Facebook page as well? Is that yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. If you just type in Tabitha Eisner. You can find you pretty easily. You will find me pretty easy. Mm-hmm. Perfect. Well, again, thanks for your time. And uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime. Absolutely. Thanks so much. This is a Danger Entertainment Podcast. DangerEntertainment.net. Danger Entertainment Podcast Network. Hey guys, this is Venice, and I've got a message from a friend of mine about my favorite podcast. 
It's your boy, Flavor Flavor and Full Effect. Check this out, everybody. I want y'all to go check out TJ. What's good, everybody? TJ Johnson here from Voice from the Underground. I am the most handsome. Big ass. And I'm smoking my cigar, of course. You know what I'm saying? The Dutch. You pick me up in an Uber and a PT Cruiser, I'm calling Lyft. Because <laughs> <laughs> they be fighting the power, talking about social issues, politics, you know what I'm saying? And we're not even that good. Right, we're terrible. Terrible. Tangents <laughs> all over the place. And not only that, but they be keeping it fun with the sports, music, comics, and movies too. Am I allowed to I talk? Think, I think, no, not right now. <laughs> Shut up, <you> just... colonizer! <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? He on Twitter at... VFU Podcast. So you can find them. You can find them. So check one, two. This is Flavor Flav. Yeah, boy. Okay. What Flav was trying to say is check out Voice from the Underground on your favorite podcast network. Voice from the Underground.